0: I'm Dr. Rod Lamberts, and this is To Be Continued, a podcast from the Australian National University that extracts literary gold from Australia's newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century. Our old newspapers are treasure troves of forgotten literature, crammed full of stories offering glimpses of a past, both familiar and foreign.
1: opened the door and advanced toward the safe, taking out his keys as he did so, and the supposed safe toppled to the floor. The manager's jaw dropped. The safe was a wooden replica of the door and had been fixed to the floor, and what the watchman and the detective had viewed every 15 minutes had been the false representation of the safe. The manager, was incapable of speech. Still, rushed to the safe, and a sight met his eyes that turned his blood to ice. The safe door was melted away as completely as if it were butter. A large opening in the floor, being covered with fragments of metal. My God! Done again! Was all his dry lips could utter. Yes, and ten thousand pounds gone! Moaned the manager.
0: I'm Dr. Rod Lamberts and you've just listened to an excerpt from How You Beak Robbed the Morning Vale Company's Safe by Clarence W. Martin and it was published in the Geelong Observer Saturday, April 2, 1910. Why did we listen to this? Because in this episode of To Be Continued, we're talking about bush rangers and that little excerpt is a cracking way to kick us off, I think. But look, I'm just the host. And what we need this episode is not one, but two experts to help us out. So I'm joined by Associate Professor Maggie Nolan. She's Associate Professor of Digital Cultural Heritage at the School of Communication and Arts at Uni of Queensland. And Professor Ronan MacDonald, Jerry Higgins Chair in Irish Studies, School of Culture and Communication at Melbourne University. So first up, Maggie and Ronan, hello, welcome.
2: Thanks very much. Great to be here. Hi, Rod.
0: And I've got a, a, a kick-off question for you, and this is where you'll both start saying, I don't know, I'm not the expert, so let's start. Let's dive in there. What's a bushranger, and what isn't a bushranger? Because we're talking about bushrangers, and we're going to be boring academics. Let's define our terms.
2: Goodness me. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking really about recognisable type of Australian bandit, aren't we? Outlaw. Somebody who lives often in the bush, often on the run from uh, police forces and uh, makes the money through uh, theft, uh, as we heard the, um, from the story you were referring to, kind of an uh, elaborate bank robbery. We heard a reading from, but also from uh, hijacking and holding people up and doing other sorts of dastardly activity in the Australian bush. Maggie, was that a good definition? or?
3: Yeah, I think that, I mean, probably one of the um, other ways that we think about bush rangers is people that kind of begin to take up arms, you know, so they're out in the bush, frequently ex-convicts, although not always. And I think one of the, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think one of the characteristics of the Bushranger by definition is that they've taken up arms, hence kind of Ralph Wood's famous book Robbery Under Arms.
0: So how are they different though? I mean, Ronan, you mentioned outlaws, bandits, etc. Are they just outlaws, highwaymen, bushwhackers, but in Australia? What's distinctive about an Australian Bushranger like this? I mean, the fact that they may have been ex-cons and they took up arms sounds Fairly specific, but anything else that characterises them?
2: I think it is a pretty Australian term, deriving from bush, from the phrase "bush," uh, used in Australia, and it definitely has a kinship, both as an historical phenomenon, but also as a as a cultural type to the bandit, um, the brigand, the highwayman. will be a distinct figure in in the British tradition, but also the outlaw, which is a figure we get a lot in, in American uh, popular fiction leading on to the Western, the idea of somebody living outside of of um, civilized society with all the uh, danger and allure on way of surviving. In Australia, I guess it's also tied in with the particular harshness of the Australian, um, of the Australian bush. And I think that there's a, I suppose i I mentioned the allure, and there is both a a, a dastardly, fearful quality. To the bushranger, but also something admirable and brave and individualistic.
0: Right. So it's I'm I'm hearing some very much Australian sorts of themes here. So the the resilience. There's a there seems to be, and please Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong here, the, uh, an implication that they are they're brave souls. They're prepared to stand against potentially not so good authority. Or am I reading too much into that?
3: I think it would depend on the. The particular representation of the bushranger, I think that there's some representations that see them as brave souls and others that see them as cruel, wild. I mean, I think that the Australian kind of take on the outlaw type or the kind of highwayman type is kind of there's a sense that they are part of the landscape they emerge in and out of the landscape and there's a kind of wildness to them frequently animalistic kinds of representations of bushrangers
2: as well so not always the not always the hero yeah a lot of them are uh convicts escaped convicts and that alliance with crime by way of implication uh is 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 there from the beginning and there in a way which possibly isn't in some of the other types situationally like the outlaw who kind of come to crime but the bushranger often uh, is somebody who's been sent here as a convict to begin with and either escaped or else turned to bushranger after they got, got their uh, freedom.
0: So bushrangers, in a sense, come from crime rather than to crime. A my, my, my sort of a related question then, what's the difference between a bushranger and any other person who's perpetrating crime at the same time as a bushranger? So we had an example of a bank robber which is not what i would have thought of as a bush ranger for starters but someone who's say knocking over shops or breaking into houses are they different to a bush ranger or could a bush ranger be all of these things
3: i think they're a little bit different because they're frequently outside of urban areas or at, you know in sparsely populated areas you know in the 19th century they were frequently kind of uh, hijacking people on the road between relatively small settlements and during the gold rushes between kind of urban centres and places where um, gold had been found. So that was particularly accelerated there because there was stuff that could be stolen. So I think it's kind of different. We had it usually, I think, although, I mean, one of the difficulties about these kinds of generalist questions, which is a great way to start, but one is that what we end up finding through the through our work with the database is that they vary enormously. So it's kind of like a type, but also with a lot of diversity within it.
0: Interesting. And yet it, it's so iconic in the Australian sort of zeitgeist, this notion of the bush Bushranger, even though this diversity I don't think is as clearly represented, at least not in my impression. You can probably tell I'm fairly Australian. Um, for me the image was always the, the it was always the man. It was always out in the bush. Like when we talked about this story of how a guy's robbing a bank, I thought, Oh, it's expanded now. But it seems to me the image is always, as you alluded to, out in the bush, fighting fighting the elements, fighting the man and all this sort of thing. So I'm surprised. I mean, how how indicative are people like the characters we're talking about in this story? ubiquitous? Which, for people listening, Ubique is spelt like unique, but with a B instead of an N. How typical is Ubique, the bush ranger?
3: Ubique is a very unique bush ranger, I would have to say. Yeah, there's not many scientific bush rangers out there, and you know, it was quite a find actually, such a such an odd kind of bush ranger type. And in some ways, what's interesting about Ubique is the way in which that story intersects with the detective genre that was so prominent in the late 19th, early 20th century. So I think there's a kind of generic element because, you know, we're talking in many ways about fictional bushrangers. I mean, there were historical bushrangers and many of the fictional bushrangers were based on actual historical bushrangers, but there are a whole lot more bushrangers that were fictional that weren't based on historical bushrangers. Yeah.
2: The first thing I say just in the scientific Bushranger is that, uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting way of thinking about Ubique as the marrying of two generic types, two two types of genre. Uh, The detective, and I suppose we think of, you know, the brilliant criminal, type of figure we might fear, a Moriarty in in Sherlock Holmes. Um, Somebody who is kind of, it's hyper scientific. Um, It's a figure who's eccentric. And I think two different sorts of eccentricity combine in Ubik: uh, the eccentricity, someone who's outside society, fascinating and dangerous as a result, and then a figure who has got this um, one of the qualities of modernity, namely a very scientific mind, but exaggerated to such an extent that they become superhuman in in, in a way and brilliant and alluring, but uh, alluring because different. So both the highly scientific mind and the bushranger are different to us, different on the margins. Uh, The the bushranger literally on the margins of society and the scientist intellectually, as it were. But uh, another point I think Maggie made that I I think is really crucial is um, the distinction between the bushranger as a literary type, as something that comes up in popular fiction in various stories and to be continued, and that is a national type. Uh, And I suppose probably the chief exemplar of that would be someone like Ned Kelly, who um is really an icon in Australia. And I think if we think about Ned Kelly as as kind of a as a quintessential Bushranger and a hero and someone who represents a certain image of Australia, that's probably recognizable to most of our listeners. That he was an historical figure who also led to thousands of songs, stories, films, short stories, novels, all the way from the earliest film up to the Peter Carey novel. But of course, a what our work, I suppose, is 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 uncovering is huge uh, subterranean and forgotten types beneath that wild male figure. And, of course, historically, we have, we have woman bushrangers like Jesse Hickman or the Chinese bushranger like Sam Poo or indigenous bushrangers. Uh, there are all types of bushrangers who don't match that that uh, type, that Ned Kelly type or the, the historical figures which complicate and enrich our historical understanding, and also our literary historical understanding.
3: Yeah, it would have been interesting to um, think whatever you beat the scientific bushranger had become a kind of literary type, but it never really did. It was just a kind of uh. random story that kind of fell away. So is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was only discovered. I think Kath discovered it through the To Be Continued database. I've never heard of anyone mention it before in Australian literary history. So. It was not a kind of representation that kind of came to the surface as something that took on a kind of representative sense of the Bushranger.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And then we go on to, um, Ronan, you're unpacking this whole thing of the the blending of genres. Because for people, if you haven't yet gone to listen to the companion part of this podcast where these stories are read out in full... The idea that you, you have this very interesting, taunting you know, Sherlock Holmes-Moriarty relationship here. There's these classic nemeses where the Ubiqui taunts his detective um, nemesis to capture him. He, he, he taunts him with basically giving away almost what he's going to do. He leaves little notes and dares him to do this. So this is also an unusual blend. Is that right?
2: Well, I mean, I think that in popular fiction, it makes sense kind of put together things which are popular. If they work in one genre, then they work in another you know, the detective genre uh, and the types of the detective genre. Now, we mentioned Shumwish and Moriarty, Mar- Mar- who's kind of a villain, and Sherlock Holmes is is brilliant. But what we might also recognise the kind of the, dull, the dullard detective, the detective who is weak compared to the outlaw who we're kind of rooting for, even though he's a criminal. And I think Ubiqui is a little bit like that. The narrative satisfaction comes... From watching you be come up with a brilliant plan or a brilliant way of outwitting his pursuer, and that's the narrative satisfaction. But we recognise that shape of story from uh, detective fiction. We recognise the migration of a certain sort of uh, eccentric brilliance, and we see them married together. How common is it for for? to see things like that within uh push stranger stories, well I think what we're finding is the the closer we get, the closer we got to push stranger, the less able we were to generalize because there's just so many different sorts. It's like getting closer and closer to something which is far away from a distance. It looks monochrome, but you get close to it and you see all the various colors of it, and then you realize, well, what is it we're talking about? Because it dissipates into these. Uh, into these particulars are these particular types.
0: So, are these are the bush ranger stories common in in the the liter- or rather the newspapers of the period we're talking about that's covered by the to be continued project? Or would would you say they're heavily represented? Only occasionally appear. How how often would they turn up?
3: Well, they are very common in the colonial fiction that have has been uncovered in the to be continued database. And probably this is a, a good time to kind of say how we kind of became even became interested in this. So Ronan and I were looking at Irish-Australian literature and we thought, okay, let's kind of pick a trope of Irish-Australianness and then look at how it plays out in the archive. And we picked Bushranger because we were almost sure. I mean, we just assumed really that Bushrangers and Irishness would there would just be massive overlap. And if we put those two search terms into To Be Continued, that we'd find all kinds of Irish bushrangers. So we put those terms in, and uh, we found that bushranger appeared about 2,000 times in about 450 stories, and that Irish appeared about 10,000 times in over 3,000 stories. And we assumed there'd be heaps of overlap between those two. And then we looked at stories with both, and that got us about 900 stories. And what we ended up finding was that bushrangers and Irishness rarely overlapped in the stories. So, this assumption that had kind of grounded the initial investigation, which was an assumption that there would be massive overlap, kind of fell apart when you actually looked at the archive even though the subsequent literary tradition where bushrangers are represented, you know, what's ended up emerging is that there is this idea that bushrangers and Irishness are kind of isomorphic. They're kind of the same or overlapping. So that's kind of why Ronan's talking about finding this huge variety when you go back into the archive. And, and in fact, but when there was the overlap between Irishness and bushrangers, The Irish were frequently not the bushrangers. I mean, the Irish, there might be Irish police officers or Irish domestic servants and the bushrangers, they were just incredibly varied back in that archive, even if they haven't kind of ended up becoming the literary tradition that we now understand to be the case.
0: So, is this secretly um, an agenda of Ronan's being chair in Irish studies to you know vindicate the Irishness of the Bush Ranger and say, actually, no, we were the victims and the law enforcers?
2: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it was an interesting journey for us because we uh, started looking at Irishness in Australian literature, Irish Australian miniature, and um, we found huge amounts of an intersection, either Australian writers who identified as Irish or wrote about Irish characters, were just Irishness in, in, in coming up. As you'd expect, Irish settlement was huge in Australia from the beginning. But we did think, probably not least because of a figure like Ned Kelly. Again, I mean, Ned Kelly isn't just retrospectively identified as having Irish characteristics or Irish typologies. In his own writing, in the Gerildery Letter, he in some, in some sense he he anticipates our issue because he himself justifies what he's done in relation to Irish struggle against uh, England, historic struggle against England against oppression, but he also indicts types other types of Irish people who he sees in the police who are pursuing him. Um. So we get all these different sorts of Irishness in that in that document. So that would have should have flagged to us that a lot of the law enforcement officials, and so on, are going to be Irish. But um, it was Kelly, and it was because of other historic Bushrangers. I mean, if you look at histories of Bushrangers, you get a lot of Irish-born people. You get uh, people like Martin Cash, who was born in uh, County Wexford and wrote his own autobiography. And you look at some of the standard histories, John Donoghue was a native of Dublin. Uh, and indeed, Alexander Pierce probably the most ghastly Bush Stranger whose story has been told in many um, macabre forms, including film, who resorted to cannibalism. Uh, so we get them historically. But what, what we don't get, what was interesting, and in, in, in what Maggie was saying, what we expected to get was more of what you can see Ned Kelly doing in his self-fashioning. I know indeed what Martin Cash does a little bit in his autobiography, which is ascribing characteristics we associate with irishness onto the bush ranger for example a tendency to rebel and anti-authoritarianism and we haven't detected that we're interested in where ideas or tropes of irishness mutate into tropes of australianness and thereby rendering the irish origin invisible that's what we're interested in our project we're trying to uncover and unpick And uh, I think that possibly happened in the evolution of the bushranger icon. Sorry, Maggie, I talked over.
3: Yeah, no, that's okay. Because even though, as Ronan was saying, you know, there's a lot of uh, famous Irish bushrangers historically, but even the most famous fictional bushrangers that we know of in kind of the Australian literary tradition are also Irish and also kind of rebellious. Actually, there's a kind of debate in literary studies about the literary tradition, whether they're conservative or radical, but even the most famous ones in literary history are also Irish, you know, in terms of Marcus Clarke for the terms of his natural life, but also robbery under arms in Rolf Ballard's very famous novel and Rosa Prayed's um, Outlaws and Lawmakers. All of these novels had kind of important Irish bushranger characters. So that's why we just assumed we'll go back to the archive and we'll find all these Irish bush rangers. I mean that's what's so valuable about to be continued. It's kind of totally alters the way you think about Australian literary history when you have access to this incredible archive and it's something we just assumed to be true and looked back to find wasn't there.
0: This, this is probably a good point then to dive into you mentioned this in passing I think Ronan female bush rangers Chinese, Indigenous, etc. Can you talk a little bit about that? Representations of female, Chinese, Indigenous, and beyond Bushrangers as well. What were they like? How common was that? Did they have uh, common characteristics with the Irish or the, or the sort of Caucasian Bushranger, or were they quite different?
2: Well, I mean, I mentioned those types because historically they existed. Mm. You know, there were women, Chinese, and Indigenous Bushrangers, and all types of other ones. I don't, I mean, we ha- in our reading of To, to Be Continued, we haven't encountered too many stories uh, of. Uh, I don't think we've encountered the story of a woman bush ranger, have we, Maggie? To your knowledge, not, not, in the work we've looked at. I mean,
3: what's kind of you know, Ronan's talking about Aboriginal or Indigenous bush rangers, Chinese bush rangers, women bush rangers, of which there were some, but not very many. But actually, what was in the fictional archive, like when you look back in the archive, what you find fictionally is bush rangers are frequently associated with Indigenous Australians insofar as there are some types of bush rangers that have a kind of spectral quality. They're in the bush, they could be anywhere. So there's this element of fear in relation to bush rangers that also characterise colonial fiction in relation to Indigenous characters. I mean, because we're talking 900 stories with the overlap, we haven't read them all and the computational methods that Kat has brought to the project helps us to look at really large large data sets, but what we've tended to find is actually a much wider typology of bushrangers than we expected to see that aren't really reducible to kind of categories of identity like race or ethnicity or gender, but they're more a kind of typology that, like for example, the helpful bushranger, you know, or um, the very cruel bushranger, uh, the redeemed bush ranger, the bush ranger who fell on h- hard times and becomes a bush ranger. Some are treated very sympathetically. Some are not. So that's more the kind of typology that we've we've found.
0: So the helpful bush ranger is one of the stories that were that you folk chose to represent the bush ranger kind of motif as it were in the um in the literature. So that is an interesting one. So a bunch of men are battling a fire to save a wheat crop. Here, Juniper and seven men labored as for their lives. Then a stranger turns up at some point. As they laid about them like madmen with their bows, they were joined by another man, a tall, sallow-faced stranger, whom nobody had seen before. And he basically vigorously helped
1: defend this fire. This individual threw a fresh bow upon the blazing corn with almost superhuman energy and shouted, Courage! Courage! We'll beat it yet!
3: Yeah, I think in that story, someone recognised him from a wanted poster and thought, ah, and and then thought, we should get the reward. if we. And um, everybody else was like, nah, he helped us.
2: <laughs> Doesn't he get confronted and says I threatened to shoot? He was, and he said
0: to
1: them, follow me and you're a dead man. He pulled a pistol out of his breast pocket and cocked it as he spoke.
2: Yeah, good line.
1: Which
0: is pretty clear.
2: Yeah, but I mean, isn't that kind of, you can see that the same sort of narrative device used when superheroes come to help out. They're kind of on the outlaw, but they come in someone like the Zorro motif, but also even into people like Superman or Batman or something who kind of don't want to be revealed. They retreat to their outlaw status after they've come in. And helped. It's part of their allure and their charm is that they have a moral code, but that the moral code operates in parallel and is not conformed to the law or the legal codes around them. And that means that they're both dangerous, but also admirable. The same way as wilderness is both sort of something which offers authenticity and excitement and individuality, but also can be dangerous. So it's kind of a clash between wilderness and civilization. In which both kind of vie are dominant. sometimes civilization needs is needed and uh, bush rangers are dastardly and they need to be controlled, but other times they're uh, kind of romantic heroes. So
0: that, that superhero comparison is an interesting one. Um, do you do you find yourself as you read these stories thinking that regularly like they in some sense or at least in some cases equate with the modern sort of superhero? tropes that you just mentioned
2: i think there are resonances with lots of i mean we mentioned the kind of the pickup with the detective genre um we can see narrative devices and narrative familiarity with you know in terms of doing good you know you're thinking about somebody with great powers who comes in and does good a kind of a batman figure but is kind of outside the law is kind of anticipated i think in that story we were discussing but i'd also i mean that sounds very modern and very contemporary to think about um Someone like these Marvel figures. I don't know if Batman's Marvel. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, uh, but I think perhaps even more germane is the is their association with older chivalric codes, with codes of honor, and we the the gentleman bushranger is something that we picked up a few times. Very very chivalrous and gallant to women quite often. Very kind, or having their own code uh, and operating according to a certain chivalric uh, order which they kind of have uh, spread or a kind of Robin Hood character yeah but I think in some ways that mask that um, the familiarity that the Ned Kelly mask has to a knight's armour I think picks up on some of that and that is not just in Ned Kelly that's in some of the stories we've found and Martin Cash who I mentioned Irish born uh, uh, Bush Ranger in his autobiography uh, styles himself as a as a kind of gentleman an old style gentleman
0: so that kind of leads me to a question. In, in the stories that you've seen, how graphic do they get? How, or not only graphic, but how much do they actually go into describing crimes? Like, are, could they be how-to manuals? Are they kind of shocking and moving into almost horror genre stuff? How, how, how far do they go?
3: I think in the bush ranger stories that representing bush rangers as cruel and dangerous, and that's kind of one of the types... Cruel, dangerous, wild, then there is more likely to um, have, be. they can be quite gory <laughs> in terms of what they represent. Um, but in those bushranger stories where the bushranger character is more kind of the noble bushranger or the gentleman bushranger, then, then less so. And there are actually stories where there are both. There might be a partnership of bushrangers, one, being the kind of noble bush ranger and one being the kind of dangerous or cruel bush ranger. Brutal.
0: So was there ever a bridge too far? Like, Were there certain types of bush ranger that would not be favourably featured within or by publishers and editors?
3: Well, I don't think we can know what stories didn't get didn't accepted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think my sense is that there was clearly a real fascination in the colonial era with bushrangers and partly because they were a historical phenomena. They're not a kind of mythical figure. They're a real figure and the variety of the bushranger types. I mean, my sense is no, that publishers would have quite enjoyed bushrangers that were out beyond acceptability because part of the point of stories is to delineate what's acceptable and unacceptable and what lies outside the acceptable. So the question of censorship or kind of, that's too far, we can't go there. I, it's a really interesting one, but I don't think we can know the answer to it. I mean, there might be methods, but.
2: Some of the histories that I've looked at, uh, well, some of which appear in, in, um, in To Be Continued, because they were serialised and then they become kind of classic histories. When well, they're talking about actual history. Some of the uh, descriptions of violence are quite hard-hitting, pretty visceral and um you know we need to bear in mind i mean i think we have emphasized the allure the kind of the the excitement of the outlaw the kind of occasional heroism as the the bush ranger who helped with the fire that we mentioned and the brilliance of the of of ubiqu but there are also and i think maggie makes a really important point when she says that these are people's lived experience we also feared there was real fear of bush ranger and One of the features of living in colonial Australia was geographic distance and the vulnerability for your homestead or for you as a traveller so far from law enforcement to crime, to serious crime, to violent crime. So the the, the writing of these stories and the popularity from them, we can source to numerous things. We can, and we've emphasised the kind of the migration, the way sort of tropes and genres borrowed from outside come here and take a particular colouring and uh, shape within the Australian mythos and work for Australian audience. But there is also, I think, the fact that these stories contain and to some extent control a real and present fear of settler Australia being threatened by those who live Beyond the law. And in some ways
3: you could say that the bushranger came to be represented in more romantic or noble terms after the threat of actual bushrangers had started to diminish over the course of... Nine. So they became heroes when they were no longer really much around. Because certainly from the archive, what it looks like is that they really were quite terrifying as you know as Ronan's saying now people were afraid of them and so stories with scary bushrangers spoke to those fears in ways that I guess horror stories might and and in the term of his natural life I mean as Ronan mentioned earlier Alexander Pisa was a cannibal that's how he survived through cannibalism so that's pretty gory and it's described in the novel this is practical right
0: because he needed yeah. to live
3: <laughs> he was hungry yeah <laughs> So,
0: so, any stories that you that you've dug through that really stood out, like surprised you, appalled you, delighted you, like what were the standout or unusual ones that you've come across so far?
2: Well, I think Ubique was one that we put forward for a reason, That was read so beautifully there at the start of the show. Uh, um, was it was a standout? But as we say, there's there's a huge there's so much diversity and so much divergence in the, in the narrative shape of them all that uh, we're really kind of interested in, in the particularity and the fact that they kind of resist that much generality about them. They're extraordinarily diverse. And uh, we kind of, I, I think, are, 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 are just really discovering a cornucopia.
3: I would agree. And I think, in fact, that, that was the most surprising thing, more than any individual kind of bush ranger character that was like, oh, wow, that's unusual. But it was more like, Wow, another type of bushranger that we hadn't anticipated. It was more that kind of a, that's where the surprise was and that it was so different to what we understood to be the representation of the bushranger in the Australian literary tradition. It actually, what made us think was how much the Australian literary tradition has simplified the figure of the bush ranger in quite binary terms—good, bad, noble, savage—that kind of thing—that emerged from such a diverse array of bush rangers, some of which are actually kind of boring or incidental or don't particularly drive the narrative. Or yes, yeah, so much broader than we had anticipated. That's where
2: I think the surprise was for us. Yeah, I also very. I mean, Maggie, Maggie touched on this earlier. I I think that the idea of the Bushranger attracting this, these different, uh, pulling on these different sorts of associations is partly because the Bushranger is a figure who's difficult to understand. And I love those moments when the Bushranger's unrepresentability comes through. When the idea of the Bushranger is a specter. It actually can't be pinned into a narrative and tied to a trope. Uh, When the language becomes animalized, almost non-human, Maggie mentioned the use of the bird call, the use of the bird call as a way of signaling and communicating among bush rangers, but it also becomes something uh, profoundly threatening, but also something which gets outside the representable. And I think that opens all types of interesting holes in how we name and settle the continent, how the continent is named and settled and it opens up all these kind of little ruptures of the ineffable. And I find that very, that was very interesting to see that in some of these stories too.
0: So that, that is interesting, actually. It's a lot more diverse than I realised for starters, if nothing else. Um, I'm going to ask an author kind of questions. Were there more common authors of these stories? And the kind of sub-question is, were any of them Bushrangers themselves, at least originally or ever?
2: Well, Martin <laughs> Cash looked to autobiography uh, and mythologised himself, is I think the classic example of the Bushranger who writes... And then we have Ned Kelly is a bushranger who writes his extraordinary Geraldry letter. We haven't yet encountered named recovered bushrangers in, the, in To Be Continued, I think. Yeah,
3: I mean, so many, we don't know a great deal about the authors of the fictional stories in the archive, but... Most of them are not stories that ended up becoming kind of famous parts of the Australian literary canon or that's what makes the database so fascinating and gives it so much potential to alter the way we think about the Australian literary tradition because, you know, when Ron and I were initially thinking about doing this project on Irish Australian literature, we were really just going to be reading a fairly small handful of texts in terms of everything that had been published and making a kind of making arguments on that basis. But once you start to go back into that really incredible archive, what you find is that it's not possible to do that. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create, that people create through the questions they ask. But what that archive makes possible is, um, it's extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I have no doubt. Having spoken with quite a number of the people working on it now, it's um, I had no idea either. This is this is great. My job is awesome. I get to listen about your jobs. Um, you kind of touched on this, but I just want to revisit it, maybe a bit more specifically, the change in the nature of the stories or the type of stories over time. So, Maggie, you made the point that once we stop being as worried about bush, bush rangers, we're prepared to kind of lionise them, make them heroes, or at least, you know, moral tales to which we can actually relate. But did you notice any, or have you so far noticed any clear sort of distinct chunks of time as the nature of the stories shifted or the attitudes towards them?
3: Yeah, I think you can look at a kind of historical trajectory in Bushrangers' stories loosely. I mean, I wouldn't want to commit to it too much, but I think very early stories, the Bushrangers did tend to be much more brutal and much more associated with savagery or wildness. I think there's another set of stories that emerge in the mid-19th century as a result of the gold rushes. So there were oh. kind of bush Ranger stories intersecting with this kind of very important national story. And then in the later part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, you can almost begin to see how a certain kind of idea of the Bushranger emerged. And that was frequently about a certain kind of national type in Ooh. the move towards federation. So yeah. as Australia was kind of federating and becoming a nation, the stories were more focused on nationalism and national type questions than earlier questions
2: around what was happening in the colonial era.
0: Interesting. Ryan, anything to add to
1: that?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think um, that sort of narrative is true. Uh, you know, the gold rush certainly brings in the whole idea of the of the of the um, fortune hunter. The individualism that gets associated with the gold rush gives the bush ranger a particular sort of uh, valency. But I guess it's also like when we think of the later later bush ranger later stories, it becomes more freighted with self consciousness. Once the myth takes hold, I suppose, in the, in the later era, so there was a, a phenomenon in the 1920s of the uh, boy bushrangers, sort of an imitative, and this is a historical phenomenon, the kind of, the imitative uh, 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 bushrangers who were operating kind of at the, uh, after the golden age and are doing so kind of in a very meta way, because they're kind of aware of themselves as uh, participating in a, in, a, in a tradition or in a kind of a myth. Oh,
0: that's interesting. So they're almost uh, what do you call it, reenactors or something? They're like
2: yeah, yeah. It becomes freighted with self consciousness. So to be a bush ranger or to write about bush ranging is profoundly self reflexive thing to do. You're kind of, I guess, the first bush rangers, the first writing about bush rangers weren't aware that it was a thing. It's what cool. Maggie would talk about. You name something, you created, but the kind of the culture becomes self conscious about it. It's a bit like in the uh, in you know when you're thinking of. So Western genre in film, when people are making Western in the late sixties, people like Peck and Pa, The Wild Bunch, or Once Upon a Time in the West by um, uh, Leone, there's a kind of a belated quality in which they're writing about the Western myth on the top of all these other stories that have been told. Makes it a layer of subconsciousness to it.
0: That's uh, I like I like that comparison. I think that's very interesting too. And again, it brings us back to that sort of international Bush Ranger versus other historically representative figures of a, of a national identity, et cetera. That's um, very clear. Um, before I round it off, I'd ask you, if people who are listening to this wanted to dive more into Bushranger stuff, are there particular stories or other things you'd suggest that they would follow up with? I mean, you've mentioned some books uh, or some novels, but within the, the TBC database, etc. as well, are there particular stories or authors you'd say, hey, if you like this, boy, have I got an idea for you?
3: Rather than looking at individual stories, what I would recommend if people are interested in Bush Rangers, to think about what else they're interested in and do a kind of search like the one we did with Irish plus Bush Ranger, but you could do it Bush Ranger plus anything and see how many stories come up, how many hits there are, and just start reading a few. Because that's what we did. You know, we put Irish and Bush Rangers in, thinking there were going to be intersections. Both those terms appeared in all the stories we looked at, but they weren't intersecting. So I think use the search function and find what you're interested in and take it from there. That's what I would say, rather than pointing them in an already existing direction because they can uncover stuff that they're interested in themselves.
2: Yeah, and how you explore on To Be Continued isn't quite the same as exploring in the library where you look up an author. I think it's at its best when you can kind of look for terms and taxonomies that you weren't really thinking of, or that you aren't simply author-based, aren't really the typical ones.
3: And asking questions that you're interested in that you actually really don't know the answer to, because you will find stuff that is quite surprising.
0: Yeah. Superb. Well, I have to say, uh, Maggie Nolan and Ronan McDonald, thank you very much. Very interesting conversation. I'm now very inspired to go and play with the database. I already was, but the idea of just going crazy and playing with it, fantastic.
3: Awesome, that's great.
2: Thanks, I'm so I really enjoyed it. Evidently interviewed. Yeah, great job.
0: If you'd like to hear the full stories we've spoken about today, we've published a special bonus episode with them read out for you wherever you're listening to this podcast. In our next episode, we're going to gather around the campfire and look at stories within stories.